Hello, and welcome to episode 103 of The Winning Agenda. My name is Jesse Marshall, and I'm here with Australian national champion Wilfred E. Horrig. Hey, that's me. That is you. Uh, and the best-dressed man in Netrunner and the man with probably more fake fan-made Netrunner cards of him than any other human on the planet, Hollis Ecker. Really? That's, that's a thing? Is that another award we can add that isn't a real award? I love it. Well, <laughs> as long as we are restricted to human. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, we don't want to start with any discriminatory talk this early in the episode, Wolfie. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry about that. Um, how are you both? At the same time, please answer. No, no. How are you, Hollis? Welcome back. I, it's been it's been a little while since you've uh, graced us with your presence. Yeah, I mean, no, thanks, man. I've uh, I've been away doing some like uh, in some special guest commentary for Peachack, which was one of the best things I've done in a very very long time in the world of Netrunner. Um, second only to the wonderful casts. What's a uh, what's Peachack for our listeners? Oh yeah, who aren't absolutely. Aware? Yeah, Peachack is uh, basically a. Uh, series of video uh special video commentary for live netrunner games um it was uh it began with uh benjamin terrell aka dodge pong off of uh, twitch um he's a he's a netrunner player uh he he and his crew out of atlanta they actually record live games whenever they have a uh regional or sort of champ in this case this was our uh local uh smc qualifying tournament uh which is like a fan made uh a fan made tournament for the uh a&R players circuit if uh, people are familiar with mm-hmm. that and basically uh, he invited me to come to Atlanta and uh, rather than participate in the tournament to instead do commentary for you know the the entirety of the two days both the qualifying and uh, finals and it was a lot of fun it was definitely a different experience and um, uh, if you guys haven't checked out Peachack and if anyone's listening and they haven't checked it out you should go take a look at it it's amazing like his production quality is really the best I've seen for Netrunner period hands down Awesome. Um, so definitely get down and check that out. Um, Benjamin Terrell slash Dodgepong is always producing great content and contributing to the community and obviously has great choice of co-commentators. Yeah, I, I agree with that. The last part is definitely what I agree with. You know what I'm saying? It's like great. Yeah, excellent taste. <laughs> excellent taste. We are going to be talking about Escalation today, the latest data pack in the... What cycle are we in? Flashpoint, the Flashpoint cycle. I'm already thinking about the Mars cycle, whatever that's called, but I don't know the name of that either. So evidently it's actually a a broader problem with me remembering the name of cycles rather than what I'm thinking about. Uh, Anyway, so we're talking about Escalation today. Thankfully, I can remember pack names and I can also remember card names because the first card in the pack is a console. It's an Anarch console, cost four, influence three. It's called Obelis. And what does it do, you may ask? Well, it gives you plus one memory. Your maximum hand size is increased by one for each tag you have. And the first time you make a successful run on R&D or HQ, sorry, the first time a successful run on R&D or HQ ends each turn, draw one card for each card you accessed during that run. Hollis, what do you think of Obelisk? Um, It definitely lends itself well to uh, any of those NR decks we've seen where they're going to be all in on like the... Uh like a tag, uh, tag me mode, all in on tag me. Uh, if you recall back to the to any number of uh, anatomy of anarch builds, they tend to have a strategy that's going to be, um, you know, heavy siphon, maybe a vamp or two, and then you're going to have cards like medium or keyhole. Um, so in the case of where they're using like that medium, you want to lower the corp down to a, a very small amount of credits where they really can't res much on R and D, 
and then proceed to R&D lock them and accessing a ton of cards. Obelisk sort of, you know, adds, uh, gives you added, uh, added value to that because as you start building up those medium counters, as you start siphoning the corp with more and more and more money, um, you, sorry, amassing more and more tags. <laughs> uh, every run, successful run of R&D basic, with that medium basically means, hey, I'll draw two cards and now I'll draw three. It's a bit aggro, though, because I feel like at some point, you know, this is not a May ability. This is a must ability. Yeah. So that's that's definitely a bit challenging. The question I have in that style of deck is, do they really need that many cards once they're already able to get into the server? Like, are they just using that as meat damage protection? At which point would they rather just play Plasgrate? Yeah, looking at it again, I'm not really confident I would pick this over any of the existing consoles for that particular style and build. I think that... Mm. And it, it obviously doesn't synergize with Keyhole either. Sorry, Right, it doesn't mean? synergize... Because you have to access the Right, cards. it doesn't synergize with Keyhole at all here. I think that really it's only going to be in this very specific build um, where you're going to be siphoning and relying on medium here. Because, uh, I, I mean, let's be honest, we're not seeing Nerve Agent really pop up at all. Um, and, I mean, that being the case, I really am not confident that, you know, drawing three and four and five cards at a time is where you really want to be on the runner side. Because you're going to lose a lot of cards as you start to, you know, access R&D over and over and over. And at some point, when you when you think about it, it gets kind of ridiculous where you could potentially draw three and then run again and then draw four. It's just too much. Oh, no, because it's only the first time. Oh, it's the first time. Okay, then it's not – then maybe yeah. – then if that's, if that's the case, it's definitely more manageable then. But 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 still the matter is I, I, I can't imagine a scenario where I always want to be drawing three cards. Like, I feel like Anarch has uh, – Anarch has – uh, builds that primarily going to use cards like Sports Hop, where you're going to use I've Had Worse. It may not be necessary to have this level of draw, especially not one that's dependent on cards you access. Okay. Wilfie, what are your thoughts? Uh, Obelis, yes, that's a good question. I think that, um, firstly, 4 is a bit expensive for a console, uh, at least a console that's been playable in the past, so it kind of relegates it to having to have a very powerful impact on the game as soon as you play it to um, be useful since you really don't want to have to install it just to install your fifth program or your fifth memory worth of programs. Um, so when we look at the benefits, firstly, the primary ability or the first ability listed on the card um, works very well with index which where you're playing to tag yourself, like for example with Siphon in protecting you against meat damage, but there's a couple problems with that. The first is that Scorched Earth, I think, is not the most popular method of tag punishment nowadays. I think Exchange and Closed Accounts are both more commonly played, and this doesn't really provide any benefit against those if you're trying to use it as some um, way to recoup the disadvantage from tagging yourself, or floating tags in general. And the Second thing is that the second ability doesn't really synergize that well with Siphon in the way we've seen it played right now, just because the most common primary breaker to pair with Siphon currently is Eater, which doesn't work with the second ability really, since there aren't that many situations where you, your opponent's going to let you build an uncontested medium without having to use any breakers during the run. And so I think maybe if Faust were to, like if the influence could work out for Faust to come back into vogue as a um, support card with Siphon, then this card would be much better because Faust works much better both in using the benefits of this card and in 
uh, enabling siphon so those two things work together so I think it's kind of narrow but and very the two abilities are very strange but this the last ability is so powerful especially when you have multiple ways to use cards that you draw mid-run like for example if you want to Faust somewhere Faust R&D with medium then use the Faust to get into HQ to siphon them you can end up getting into multiple many places that you couldn't previously but that's sort of a case which we don't see very often right now so it sort of feels like a, a more powerful mirror for Faust in a sense yes in that you know mirror replenishes your resources when you make a successful run on R&D that you can then use to use your breakers again in a way that you may not otherwise be able to in the one turn yeah but I'm not sure that that's a good enough payoff for a console I mean it certainly hasn't been with mirror uh, and the other issue with this, I guess, is that it sort of has anti-synergy with Siphon in a sense, or it just doesn't synergize with Siphon, the second ability. So the first one's encouraging you to play Siphon, and then the second one doesn't actually work with Siphon, mm-hmm. which I think is a bit awkward. It, it's not, it doesn't consign it to unplayability, particularly since you have uh, the ability of Omar Kung, which we'll talk about in a moment, that does make it more likely that you'll be able to trigger the second ability but it certainly does make it more awkward using this in other IDs, I think. So the second card in the pack is Black Orchestra. It's another one in the paperclip uh, cycle. It is a program icebreaker anarch decoder. Uh, It is install three, memory one, strength two, influence two. Whenever you encounter a code gate, you may install Black Orchestra from your heap, paying its install cost. Three credits plus two strength, Break up to two Codegate subroutines if able. Wilfie, what do you think of this one? Does it live up to the the power level of Paperclip? You would assume not, being a decoder in, in Anarch, but uh, is it is it playable? Yeah, it's definitely no Paperclip, um, but I think that the first ability, the ability to install it from your heap is so powerful, as I said with Paperclip, that it makes up for the kind of extreme inefficiency of this card. I think uh, on the internet, people are saying it's about as efficient as Peacock is, most like overall over the range of um you know code gates yeah code gate playable code gates from low strength to high high strength which is not so great but um if you need a primary code gate break like a support code gate breaker to break turing and lotus field especially if that's a big problem for what you want to do then this card does like this ability is, I think, good on a breaker that you don't want to use super often, like Paperclip or August, Black Orchestra. This Black Orchestra more, just because Paperclip's so efficient at breaking barriers. But the ability to hide this in your heap and only install it when you need to use it is really strong, as opposed to for a primary breaker where you might want, basically, want to have it installed in every game, like Faust, Eater. Yeah, I think part of the problem is that the two main code gates you would want to target with this are probably uh, Lotus Field and Turing, as you mentioned. And it is a good replacement for Zool uh, if you're only expecting Lotus Field because it breaks it for three, uh, which is the same as what Zool breaks it for. Actually, it's one more efficient than what Zool breaks it for. But against Turing, it's wildly more inefficient because you have to pay six. So the fact that it scales so poorly between strength four code gates and strength five code gates, which are probably the two most common strengths, not only in terms of Turing and Lotus Field, but things like Tollbooth, probably makes it a little bit harder to play. What do you think, Hollis? 
Um, I actually agree with you guys, and so I—I I mean, I don't want to really want—I don't really want to reiterate your points because I, I think you made them very well. I—I I, I would add to that um, the. It's fitting in the faction that, of course, has a card like David, um, where they can handle very, very, you know, large pieces of ice that are kind of difficult to break efficiently. On top of having a support card like Data Sucker, where um, the awkward strength and awkward, you know, uh, strength that uh, Black Orchestra pumps itself to, is sort of uh, benefited a bit when you when you consider Data Sucker is also going to normally be in a build like that. Yeah, Paperclip is extremely efficient. So it's rare that you even have to use Data Sucker with it. The exception being what, like Eli? That's like the most sickest thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, but when it, you know, it basically, if I don't think I cut Data Sucker from any Anarch list anytime soon, that you know, that's going to use regular breakers. And if that's the case, then Black Orchestra doesn't really, while it's not fantastic, it just seems fine. I mean, knowing I have Data Sucker support, know that I could have, knowing I could have David, the card just seems fine. And like Wolfie said, the heap installability really helps sell it. I mean, you can honestly forget it and just throw and pitch it, and it comes in when you need it. Yeah, I agree with you there, Hollis. The Data Sucker point is a good one because it's if you are dealing with those Strength Five Code Gates, being able to use one Data Sucker counter to get around having to spend that additional three or the second lot of three is certainly a great trade. So if you do pair it with data sucker uh, and you can reduce the cost of breaking strength five code gates to three credits on a data sucker counter, that's certainly a good trade. Um, the next card in the pack is Omar Kung conspiracy theorist. It's a, the Anarch ID, the, the first Anarch ID that we've had in this cycle. Uh, it is a zero link runner. It's got deck 45, influence 12. So a little bit of an influence penalty there. The ability on Omar is make a run on archives for a click. If successful, instead treat it as a successful run on another central server. Um, so there are a couple things to note about Omar. The first is that, as you mentioned, the 12 influence is quite a significant penalty from the regular 15. It's a decrease of 20%. And... Anarch, I think, has the best... with Since Anarch has so many playable MWL cards and just an embarrassment of riches in general, the 12 influence is... Like, you can still easily build a good Anarch deck with 12 influence, so I think it's not as important as it might be in other factions, but it does mean that the ability has to be stronger to make up for it. And when I think of what Anarch decks want to do there i kind of group them into three categories the first is trying to siphon or otherwise use uninteractive or like not uninteractive but not access regularly um tools like siphon or dlr to keep the corp down and sort of uh build some late game which inevitably kills them without necessarily needing to be vulnerable to too much um and so this doesn't really help since for this sort of uh, with this sort of identity you want to be running a lot and pressuring the cop that way although it does sort of synergize with siphon in that they want to put an ice on archives um to protect against this but also want to stack ice on hq um but i think it's not that great because random accesses aren't that good for that sort of deck the second one is just a more generic yeah so i think that kind of deck would rather play max or wizard which i think are the two best or valencia which are the three best um 
Anarch ideas just because they all allow you to sort of disrupt the corp game, corpse game plan a little more than just random access. Is the ability to pressure all three central servers not enough, do you think? I mean, certainly Noise also has the ability to do that if you play Siphon, but I think playing Siphon in Noise is a little more difficult, as in making the HQ threat viable decreases the power of your other threats a little bit too much, I think. Whereas with this, it doesn't seem like you need to make much of an investment other than the three influence penalty in the ID to have the like a legitimate archives threat. You've then got the medium threat in faction and you can import the HQ threat. Do you think that that is not enough? Well, the reason I think that this the playability of this card might be kind of limited is that no matter how unprotected archives is, you can only run there once per turn mm-hmm. with the ability. So the ability to, to gain medium counters, like it's okay if you're medium or nerve agent or turning wheel or however you want to generate multi-accesses is already like your medium already has three counters that's mm. so good but if hq and r&d are protected like enough protected that you can't really get into them you're i think it's still not that great to be able to gain one medium counter a turn like assuming they still put something on archive so you have to spend some resources to get into them like the best thing for the corp to do already is to make it so that each of their servers especially their centrals have has a relatively even chance of generating advantage for the runner so there's no obvious place for the runner to run and this doesn't really go against that i think think that's really true like isn't the corp try isn't it good for the corp if they only have to do that on r&d and hq like are there really that many runners that say to the corp you actually have to spread your resources evenly across all three centrals no, it definitely is an advantage, but what I'm saying is that because you can only get at most one access from this each turn, the ability for the runner to really do what the best thing that this kind of ability pushes you to do, which is to, say, play medium, be able to run three times, and then force the corp to play to put an ice on mm-hmm. that server, and then work on dealing with that ice and you still have those three medium counters, I think that's the best sort of thing to do if you're going to play this sort of... So what if you saw it as a a tempo thing then, that on the... Taking that example, you play medium, make three runs. You mean he's got three counters. The next time they put an ice, you can get past the ice pretty efficiently once, but to do it twice is a real stretch of your resources. This just gives you a free extra run, essentially, and a free extra medium counter. True, and that's the best situation for this card. And that's the advantage, I think, to making the corp having... Have to protect three centrals, but say if they start with an ice on r&d you don't really gain that much from the ability like you can bypass the ice once per turn but um it's not like that that's how i see it really. could it like, could you then use it in a similar way across the two turns so you play medium you get past the r&d ice once so you can um then you use omar's ability so you've got two counters from the first turn and then the following turn you can potentially do it again in which case you've sort of effectively doubled your medium counters on top of what you otherwise would have been able to do. That's true. Like, if they... Like, yeah, if they only have one ice and your plan is to medium them, then Omar definitely provides some advantage, I think, but I don't think that's so common for Anarch decks that you have the opportunity to start mediuming them. That That's a strange word from turn one. Mm. Like... I think that the abilities of Wizard Max and Valencia to kind of disrupt the corpse remote game, uh, in the case of Wizard and 
Valencia and to set up faster in the case of Max are sort of more impactful just because Anarchs don't really get into the situation very often, as I said before, where you can really start going at it from turn one. Yeah, it does seem to make it a little more all-in on medium if you're going for that strategy. But I guess the other upside is that you could potentially trash a Crisium Grid or something like that, a defensive upgrade that's placed on R&D a little more easily. I don't know. I it, it just seems like something that could enable a more concerted attack on centrals from Anarch in a way that they haven't really been able to necessarily do it before because they have difficulties interacting with ice as efficiently as the other factions in some instances. I don't know. What do you think, Carlos? Um, I agree with many of those points, but to match his uh to match his actual title, I'd like to give a theory also as far as like looking at how um he could be utilized in a unique way. Um, the point that I really wanted to, I guess one of the points I really wanted to pull from was that the additional pressure that's, that's, you know, in tempo loss that the runner forces on the court by allowing archive that, that successful archives run to be a successful access. So I guess the, I'll start with the fact that it's only once per turn means that you are a little limited in how you're going to use it because you're not going to be able to completely like blow a corp away. I don't think, um, just with that one ability, it's, it's it, just using it once per turn. I think it's. It's there to apply an appropriate amount of pressure. Um, I'd prefer it if the ability allowed me to use maybe a run event as well, but that's a whole different story. Um, but on top of that, I think what kind of makes what kind of uh, can help exacerbate this sort of uh, problem the corp is going to face when dealing with a card uh, uh, deck with Omar with Omar is going to be ice destruction. It's already really hard, in my opinion, uh, playing against decks like Dumble Fork that are really really good at destroying key pieces of ice. To make a server that is um, taxing enough uh, through the mid and late game to where, you know, you're not having to completely disrupt your plan to make sure that you as the corp can keep scoring out agendas until until the game is over. So I can see situations where Omar having that added pressure of being able to not only destroy ice with what's available in the Anarch faction, but being able to say, hey, in addition to me destroying ice, you also are going to be thinned on the ice that you can play because Archives is a vector of attack for me. I think that also allows for a very unique sort of interaction that we quite we really haven't seen. Now, of course, Dumble Fork decks may have not really needed that kind of pressure before, but I think it's interesting to note that they now have it. Anarch has additional pressure now on top of the pressure provided by having uh, ice destruction events. I would like to see if decks that utilize that uh, cards like Knifed, Spoon, and Forked are going to get a much larger advantage from using Omar's ability because of the additional pressure it, as it relates to R&D and HQ when they do run on archives. The next card in the pack is Peregrine. It is a 5-cost criminal breaker, 1 memory. It's an icebreaker decoder. Install 5, memory 1, strength 2, influence 2. 1 credit, break 1 codegate subroutine. 3 credits, plus 3 strength. 2 credits, return Peregrine to your grip. Derez a codegate. Use this ability only after using Peregrine to break all the subroutines on that code gate during a single encounter. What do you think, Wilfie? Uh, Peregrine. So it's a, another code gate breaker, just like Black Orchestra. And I think that it's of similar power level to Golden if you look at how um, easy it is for this to, play, to break most of the commonly played code gates maybe a little better for being a code gate break like 
maybe its stats are a little better, but Kogia Breakers are usually a little better in general. Um, but I think as with Golden, the install cost is so high that the last ability doesn't really get that much potential to be strong just because very expensive pieces of ice that are also sort of easy to get through don't really exist for the corp like many corp decks don't even play one ice that would be worthwhile to peregrine um but it is worth noting that with fairchild tollbooth and dna tracker all sort of playable nowadays i think more than expensive expensive code gates are a bit more playable than expensive sentries so if there was some situation where you were really just swimming in money and you needed like something to do with it this card could allow you like and temujin contract is very good at doing that so this card could allow you to if you wanted a koge breaker that isn't peacock or and doesn't cost you influence i think this card actually has reasonable stats to be playable but it's definitely not exciting Move on okay. To the next uh, Hollis, did you want to say anything about Peregrine before we move on? No, I, I agree with all those points. It's too expensive to use that secondary ability, and I think that its lack of influence in Crim makes it a worthy consideration for an include, maybe, if it's just going to break and not and really much else. does it do it more efficiently than the existing Codegate Breakers if you essentially install the, ignore the third ability, I should say? Uh, obviously, it doesn't do it more efficiently than Passport, but if you're looking for a Remote Breaker, comparing it to Peacock... Right. Um, Alexander White, aka Vinegary Mink, uh, made a good point about the card. In in a world where basically the alternatives seem to sort of use Data Sucker as support, um, because Data Sucker obviously supports Passport in a similar way that it would support Peregrine trying to break ice just above uh, two or just above five. Um, I think that if you're gonna have uh, Data Sucker support, Peregrine becomes a lot better. Um, in which case, again, you're, you're back to the, that, that consideration like we talked about with Black Orchestra where you're going, all right, well, you know, will Data Circle Support make this card now quite a bit better than the other options when we consider an influence cost, things like that? Yeah. And does the five install cost interfere with that also? Considering, I hate to be, I hate to be that guy. I know one credit in Netrunner can make a really big difference. But a lot of people were p- paying four credits for Gordian Blade, and I felt like that was a pretty decent tempo hit. Um, I think if you can rationalize four credits for a three influence card with Gordian Blade, I think maybe you can also rationalize a five credit hit for a non-influenced Koge Breaker that's only used to break on remotes. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I, I think, and it breaks Tollbooth as efficiently as Gordian Blade. I mean, to be fair, Tollbooth was not the yeah. card you wanted to see when you had Gordian Blade in play, but. Right, but Tollbooth is actually okay if you hit this and you really are swimming in money. Like, yeah, since you can, Tollbooth might actually be one of the few ice. As I said before, Tollbooth, Fairchild, and um, DNA Tracker are kind of the only ice where I can see it actually be worthwhile yeah. to use the third ability. And certainly, having an ability on a card, you know, if we're evaluating it, ignoring the third ability, uh, and it's okay having that third ability is better than not having it, right? Because there are going to be situations, obviously, where you want to do it. Right. It's decent. All right. Uh, The next card is Houdini. 
It is another a new stealth breaker for shapers. It's a two cost program icebreaker decoder, memory one, strength two, influence three, one credit, break code gate subroutine, two credits, plus four strength for the remainder of this run. Use this ability only by spending at least one credit from a stealth card. Hollis, what do you think of this one? How does it compare to Refractor? That's the obvious comparison here. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 I think I've brought this card up a lot, but for those of you that don't know, I constantly keep going back and forth in my head on whether or not I, I truly think it's better or if I just like the numbers more. Um, uh, long story short, I was looking at a way to make a stealth deck in Shaper uh, where I didn't want to have to deal with using additional stealth credits to break Archangel. Effectively, I wanted to make a stealth deck where I used stealth credits as needed to pump strength, but I didn't run the risk of being overtaxed by my opponent layering ice. Um, in most circumstances, when you play Corp, you don't really want to layer ice that way. Like, you would normally layer code gates, but when you know that their primary breaker is going to utilize a fair number of stealth credits, you're going to start layering that, you know, ice above... You're going to start layering ice that they have to keep pumping with, with their available stealth credits to limit the amount of runs they can have. So when, when I considered that, I said, I really would rather not face that problem or even risk that problem. Uh, and so Houdini kind of stood out. It's the, I think the one thing that, that's, that made it stand out was the fact that it retains the strength for the remainder of the run. So the entire strategy at all where you could consider trying to overtax my stealth credits sort of goes out the window uh, when I'm using Houdini because once I pump it once, it remains at a six for the remainder of the run, considering the only thing higher than that is what, like a um, uh, little engine? Is that correct? Yeah. 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 I mean, considering that's the only playable code gate that I I can think of that is at that's that's above that, it just kind of made sense that I would normally choose Houdini over Refractor. Um, For only a a one credit premium in install cost as well. Exactly, yeah. I pay one extra credit to ensure that I don't really have to worry about getting uh, the potential or risk of overtaxing by stacking code gates again incredibly rare most of the time not done but it's the strategy that you adopt when playing against stealth usually to overtax them you won't do it otherwise and so that was the that was the consideration for me yeah so that's that's the upside of houdini the downside is obviously that for strength five uh five three to five um this costs you an extra credit to pump compared to a fractor it's not an extra yeah. stealth credit but it's just an extra normal credit and does that, combined with the increasing install cost, mean that you're still going to play Refractor? Um, or do, do the upsides that you were talking about a moment ago mean that Houdini's the better option? I'm not really sure at this point. Um, I think part of it depends on how much the Net Merca and uh, Smoke uh, Stealth deck actually creates and generates credits. Uh, it seems like the economy is going to be robust enough to support Houdini over Refractor and not be too put off by having to spend the extra credit uh, every run where the code gate is between strength three and five, and that it will prefer to have the smoother experience over the whole game that Houdini offers, where once they have double code gates and once they have strength six and higher code gates, you're not taxed in any greater way. Um, But what that relies on is two things. One, that the economy of the runner deck is robust enough that it can generate those credits early and it's not locking itself out more often by having that slightly steeper cost of early runs. And two, the other thing, which is a potential problem, is that the current metagame encourages runners to have high numbers of credits available to them early in the game, in which case having a 
a breaker that offers you a smoother experience over the whole game but requires a little more in the early phase of the game may not be exactly where you want to be. What do you think, Wolfie? Yeah, I think what you said is right. I think that the stealth... I've been playing the stealth a little bit in the preparation for Worlds, you know, since Netmerka is a new card that we'll talk about soon, and it's fairly impactful, I think. Um, So a couple things are that... One, I think the biggest issue I've been facing with that deck is already hard-hitting news, which means that I'm really wary of anything which forces you to spend more credits early, like two more credits early is fairly big, in order to get into a server. Um, And also that while it is true that some decks do stack, like either have six or higher code gates or stack code gates that doesn't like stealth is usually fairly good at dealing with that anyway just because by the time you've gotten to that late in the game especially now that you have netmerker you can build up enough stealth credits that it's not really a huge issue issue whereas the bigger issue i think is the early game every credit counts in the early game especially if you're most of your economy is kind of in stealth and you don't really have anything like shore gamble like you don't have too many cut like burst economy cards that let you really rock it up in credits early uh, and also the last thing is that it's harder to get netmerker to cycle netmerker counters with this as opposed to refractor which i found to be like fairly relevant early yeah it's harder to build up do you mean on netmerker yeah, because yeah. you can't it doesn't have a one one cost ability yeah, yeah. um so speaking of yeah a, a <laughs> clean segue from that discussion into the next card uh, so the next card is netmerker it's a new stealth resource it's a resource virtual stealth in shaper three cost uh influence three the first time you spend at least one credit from a stealth card each run place one credit on netmerker or draw one card an ability i think people have ignored a little bit when they're assessing it but we'll come to that soon use credits on netmerker for anything uh, which has sparked a uh, a throwback to the discussions that the no, uh, proponents no, of the no, other game no, had no, when no. assessing a card called Progenitus, which had protection from everything. So what is a thing and what is not a thing? Uh, we'll wait for Damon to clarify that. Uh, which, which things <laughs> can I spend these credits on and which things are not in fact things and therefore can I not spend these credits on? Uh, but aside from that, um, getting to the, the mechanics of the card itself rather than slightly humorous segues... Um, the first time you spend at least one credit, so it triggers once, um, it has to be from a stealth source, but it can be from a recurring stealth source, and it's from any stealth card. So it can be from your ID, if your ID has a stealth credit, hint, hint, the next pack, uh, or it can be from your hardware or programs being like cloak or lockpick, the lockpick cycle, uh, things that have recurring credits. So when it, the first time you spend one of those in a turn, you're effectively adding a credit to your credit pool, but it's better than that. It's near super credit pool, i.e. your Netmerker credit pool, which is a pool of stealth credits that you can spend at any time. What do you think, Wolfie? Yeah, so as I was saying before, um, the most this card, I think this card has been really powerful in revolutionizing how stealth economies work um, because of the fact that it means it's not so punishing to run early because you can sort of use it as a desperado. For those who don't know, you can after the last ice has been encountered or you can use your cloak to boost the strength of your refractor for example and load a counter or draw a card off your netmerker which means that you can still have the stealth credits available if you need to use them but also gain advantage from your recurring ones 
when you don't need to use them. Sort of like security testing did in the old Stealth Andy decks, where if you didn't want to use your cloaks that turn, you could cycle them through uh, even light, lightly defended servers to get security testing money. So this is sort of a supercharged version of that, in that you can do that multiple times per um, turn rather than only once per security testing. So it's kind of like... Wait, you can only do it once per turn, though. Oh, oh yeah. each round, sorry, once per round. Each, yeah, one, yeah. each round, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, that, I think, solves one of the... Like, as I was saying, that sort of means you can build your stealth deck a little differently in that you don't have to be so concerned about needing to accumulate lots of stealth credits before you run. You can sort of run early, and it's not such a big tempo hit because if you don't need to use your recurring credits, you can load them onto your netmerker. So I think that, yeah, this card is really strong and how to best build around it will be a puzzle for Worlds, I think. And Cloak was already a really good card to have out early in those decks because it is like the other half of your breakers in a sense. But like you say, if you're running and you're not actually using that particular breaker, say you're using your Paperclip or your Corroder more than your Stealth Breakers, you're not getting a lot of use out of those Cloaks during that phase of the game and being able to turn the investment you've made and having that cloak in play into more credits is really quite fantastic or more cards, which is also something worth pointing out um, because cards can be just as valuable as credits in those sorts of decks or in any deck really. What do you think, Hollis? Um, I, uh, well, I mean, so just yesterday I was, uh, well, I was, I was uh, at the counter ordering a chicken sandwich from Burger King and I realized that because I had, I was doing my normal evening run, I left my wallet at home. Luckily, I had my Netrunner cards, and I just pulled out Netmarker <laughs> and uh, showed that I had you know enough on it to pay. I mean, it's anything, right? Anything <laughs> is is what's really really cool about the card. Yeah, I, I feel... don't don't go putting your Netmarkers in vending machines, people. Yeah, it's not gonna, you're not going to get anything. <laughs> it's not going to work that way. That way. Yeah. Um, you you mentioned earlier. I, I agree. I agree with everything Wolfie said. I think that it is a puzzle for people to figure out how to best use it at, at Worlds. Um, Jesse, you made the point when you even mentioned the card that maybe the draw ability is not used as often. Um, I have sort of a scenario to give. Sorry if, uh, about my stories, but in short, I watched. Uh, I have a local player that I played with named Ricky, and uh, it was it. It's not. I wasn't really criticizing, but I was taking note myself because. I haven't had much of an opportunity to play with Netmerker, only see it played. And so while I was playing against this deck, I happened to notice basically near the middle end of the game, Netmerker's got around five to six, you know, re- stealth credits on it from any number of sources, whether it was from, um, whether it was from, you know, Cloak, whether it was from like, you know, like a Silencer, things like that, because it was, this was actually in a Andy stealth deck. And I, and I remember at some point in time, there was a click spin to draw a card and I couldn't help but think to myself, well, these stealth credits really aren't being used. And I know it's really hard to kind of determine this value because you, you don't really know when you're going to need them, right? But I'm looking at... And you can at, use them you know, in traces is the other, the other thing worth pointing out as well, which is yeah, really, really good about this card. Exactly. Like, yeah, I mean, like, so you don't really know when the credits are going to be used. But all I, all I saw was, you know, definitely there was potential there where there were clicks that were click one to draw, you know, click one to draw, where I was going, man, if instead of that stealth credit on Netmarker... If that was just if if, that, if this ability just triggered, it'd be phenomenal. And what's great about it is that there's a feasible way to do it where um, nothing really happens. Like for example, you can run an, an ice that I have that's basically an ETR and pump a breaker and just bounce and basically hit and bounce. And from there, you know, you either can gain the stealth credit or you get the card draw, 
or any number of or any combination of things because you're spending the cloak or you know cloak or other reoccurring credit that's not really being used as real money and putting and as a result you know turning your your fake credit into a card drawing opportunity or another stealth credit to, to load for later. It was you never want to do that when it was already res though, because then you could just spend the click drawing. Well, yeah. Anyway, but I mean, yeah. it's yeah. But but it was it was one of the scenarios where I was kind of like, man, maybe in this scenario here where you've got five or six stealth credits, maybe you ha- and like a, there's like ghost runners and reoccurring from other sources. It's probably fine to draw cards here. Like I think I think I see I see most people I see playing this card are just stacking the credit, which is fine. But I think you also need to be paying attention to the value and the card drawability because that is also fantastic. You can basically read this as a a new professional contact that instead of click gain a credit and draw a card it says click make a run and draw a card or click make a run and gain a credit right 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 right. as long as you have some other stealth source that's basically what it says and that's pretty good yep um cool i'm looking forward to trying that out uh the next card in the pack is find the truth it is a mini faction card the first mini faction card in the pack it costs zero it's a resource directive virtual in the atom faction uh influence three whenever you draw a card reveal that card the first time you make a successful run each turn you may look at the top card of r&d so you're showing your information and you're making them show their information hollis what do you think is this gonna change the structure of adam decks and bring them in out of the wilderness to me this is is nice to have primarily because the other the other cards that uh adam has as far as directives uh, go they can be somewhat limiting. Like, I know some people are really big fans of the one that basically says you, like, your hand size is reduced. But I think that particular safety card... Safety first, I think. Safety first. But I think that particular card is incredibly cumbersome. Like, basically, you actually have you have true deck slots that are dedicated to make sure that you mitigate that, that disadvantage. So... Adam having the you know Adam having the ability ability to remove that out of his like beginning of the game, and just kind of you know have an alternative is just is just good in in general. I don't think it helps. And in a hard hitting news meta, having always be running in your deck is a massive liability. Yes, I agree. I totally agree. And not to mention, it's just it's just a sheer fact that you, I mean this having this different directive frees up deck slots in a deck like Adam, where your deck slots are already going to be taken up by a lot of influence and. I really don't want to have to waste my time having uh, cards like Public Sympathy to kind of fix that sort of issue. I mean, I don't think any runner should be running or need to be running Public Sympathy in order to be, you know, competitive or possibly viable. I'm not saying this card does that, um, but I, I, I feel like this is definitely going to find a home in people that do enjoy playing at them where they don't want their hand size to be reduced. They want to save deck slots. They want to play more economy that way. Yeah. Wilfie, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think the most... Like, this card is definitely strong. The um, drawback, I think, is is pretty minimal. And the ability is can definitely be relevant, especially if you don't have that much multi-access or your influence needs to be spend on, spent on stuff other than consistent multi-access. I mean, that ability's been priced pretty highly over the course of the game, like the ability to look at the top card of R&D. Yeah, yeah definitely. I think f- compared like compared to the other Atom directives, which have very harsh drawbacks and fairly powerful abilities, like from fairly to very powerful abilities, this has a fairly powerful ability, or 
moderately to fairly powerful ability and basically a non-existent drawback mm. i think yeah which is really i think where you want to go given that you can swap out whichever of the other directives is most punishing to you in that sp- particular matchup and so, since that and since now we know that you can change your directives after your opponent reveals their identity the existence of a fourth directive and especially one as well priced as this um i think is probably the best thing they could have done to make adam playable great the next card is first responders it's a neutral resource connection install to influence zero two credits draw one card use this ability only if you have suffered damage from a corp card ability this turn so this is a way of dealing with multiple cards dealing you meat or net damage in that in the window in between your opponent's clicks if they've dealt you damage with one of their clicks before they get another chance to do uh, to spend a click you can pay two credits to draw a card that could help you recover and or defend yourself from double scorched earth from neural amps after other sources of damage from other decks that are trying to kill you, but it won't help you against single instances, single large instances of damage. What do you think, Wilfie? Yeah, so I see this card as sort of a replacement to Feedback Filter in any decks that we're playing Feedback Filter. Um, It's a bit worse in that you can't use it indefinitely, like if you run out of cards in your deck, you run out of cards in your deck, but it also doesn't cost one influence if you're playing Feedback Filter out of faction. I think that... It also doesn't save you from Overrider, which is a problem. Uh, yes, that's true. But Feedback Filter was already sort of limited at protecting you from Overrider, but it definitely is relevant. Um, but I think the fact that it's a resource especially makes it a, not really fulfill the same role that Hopper or Plasbury do in protecting you from Boom. Like, this doesn't protect you from Boom at all, but most of the time, but especially... Um, since they usually have to float tags on you to be able to boom you, um, this does, like even if you have more cards and more than five cards in hand, this doesn't help in that instance. And so I see it. Yes, what I said before, like I see it as mostly a replacement replacement to feedback feedback filter rather than a replacement to hopper or plasticrate. It does help in concert with Plascrete at defending you from double boom, I suppose. But would you rather just have another Plascrete at that point? I don't know. Maybe if you play this and Plascrete, you get the versatility of this in being able to help you against net damage decks, as well as the ability to augment your Plascrete, essentially, to defend you from double boom. Maybe that's good enough. I don't know. What do you think, Hollis? That's true. Oh, Wilfie? Mm-hmm. Um, I was just going to say, but the fact that it's a resource still really hurts you in that situation, I think. Oh, Corp clicks up generally pretty pressed on those turns. Certainly if they mid-seasons you or hard-hitting news you and you can't remove the tags, you're probably not going to be able to pay for this card anyway. But let's just say you can't, then obviously it doesn't help you as much because they've got more flexibility with their clicks. But if they're trying to 24-7 you, if they're trying to do other things that uh, you know, take up clicks on their turn in addition to the meat damage cards that they're playing. It may be that they won't be able to find the extra click to trash this anyway on that key turn. I think that it does fit into the slot 
Um, I, I do like that there are lots of versatile anti-damage cards or kill protection cards that sort of are good against different sections of what you strategies of what you expect your opponent to be trying to kill you with specifically so i think this is good in that sense mm. and maybe it's your second or third plus great comes out for this possibly i don't know worth testing though hollis what do you think uh i could not have said it better than and, and i guess summarize it better than you guys have it just really feels like this card's really going to be best for decks that are doing you a uh, thousand cuts damage and you'd rather prevent it. So in that regard, it's the feedback filter. No influence um, for the sake of uh, for the sake of like making sure you, you survive through little tiny instances of net damage. Um, you're still losing the card, but you you know you get to draw cards up. I suppose uh, another good point. To, another good thing to point out here is that you can kind of choose to dump into this however you seem you see you deem fit. If for whatever reason. Um, you decide now. Oh, I guess, guys, you can you can correct me on this, but okay. Let's say, for example, my opponent, um, I make a run. My opponent uses House of Knives, and they mm. do a net damage. I can pay eight, correct, and yeah. draw four, yeah. right? Yeah, if you want uh, to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, basically, I can pay all of it in that one paid ability window, and in that instance, it feels a bit better than feedback filter because while feedback filter is preventing the damage. It's sort of neat to take a, a small piece of damage and just kind of just draw up to my heart's content based on the money that I have. That yeah. is you can do it any time during the rest of the turn. In fact, you don't even yeah, need that's, to do it right at the time you take the damage. Yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, I mean, I, I I dig it in in that kind of replace area. Like you said, versus big damage uh, sources, so booms and scorched earths, where you may need a plascrete. In most cases, I would rather just have the uh, the double plascrete than have this one particular card you know, on top of the play screen. Cool. Well, that brings us to the end of our run-aside review of Escalation. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed the discussion, and we will be back next Monday, as always, with our corpse-side review of Escalation, starting off with some very, very juicy ice. Uh, so we hope you can join us then, and we've thoroughly enjoyed being with you tonight. I've been Jesse Marshall, here with Hollis Echo and Wilfie Horrig for The Winning Agenda. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for listening. Bye. And as always, you can get in touch with us on Facebook at The Winning Agenda, on Twitter at Winning Agenda, uh, on, G- on email at thewinningagenda at gmail.com. And if you like what we're doing and you want to throw a, sh- a few shekels our way, in the words of the great big bad wolf, then you can visit us at patreon.com slash thewinningagenda. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.